All right, let's go uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 2. 1 Corinthians chapter 2. Um, so, yeah, we, we spent four weeks looking at chapter 1. And, uh, well, now we get, we're actually going to do all of chapter 2 today. I know it's shocking. So, uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 2. If you don't have a Bible, we will have the text uh, uh, put up on the screen behind me in just a little bit. Uh, if you uh, are watching us online right now, we'll put the text up on your screen when that time comes around. Uh, we'll get there in a moment. Um, if you don't own a Bible of your very own, don't have one that you can call yours, uh, that's just especially yours, uh, we can actually fix that. We love giving Bibles away around here. We have these really fancy hardcover ones, and it's got a little gold writing on the front. It looks pretty. It's a black cover. Man, it's a pretty Bible. And so we actually love giving those away around here. And so if you don't have a Bible of your very own, come talk to me or reach out to me online and uh, well, we can send you one. And uh, we, we believe that God uses his word for all kinds of important things, but chief among those important things is that he uses it to reveal himself to his people. We want you to know God. We want everything in your life and about your life and around your life to be shaped by, fueled by, uh, encouraged by knowing and walking in relationship with God. And if the Word is, gonna, is the way he's going to get you to that point, we want to put Bibles in people's hands and encourage people to read them. And, and so all those things. Uh, so if you don't have one, let me know and we can fix that too sweet. All right, so we are in uh, really the early stages of a very long series where we're going to take a slow, walk or a leisurely walk through the letter that we call 1 Corinthians. It's, it's one of the longer epistles in the New Testament, so it's definitely going to take us a while to get to the end, uh, but I also think that God tends to bless it when we, when we lean into these longer series. Uh, he, he seems to do good things here uh, whenever we uh, commit to and lean into these things, and so uh, I, I trust that God's going to use that in a powerful way to shape us and to, to fuel us on to where He wants us to be, and so I'm excited to see where He, where he takes it from here. Uh, the letter 1 Corinthians is written by the Apostle Paul. We think somewhere between 53 and 55 AD. It's written to the church that's in Corinth, Greece during that time. And it's a church that Paul knew incredibly well, like incredibly well. Uh, he helped to start the church there. Uh, if you want to call him that, he was the first pastor there. All right. uh, it, it had only been a few years, though, since he had left there to, to, that God had called him to, to move on from there to other places, to start new work in those other places. Uh, and, and, but at a max, it's been about three years uh, since he had been in Corinth with these people. And so this is not a, a, a group of strangers that he's writing to. This is not some nameless list of folks. These are people he knew. They're people he had a, 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 had a massive hand in evangelizing and bringing together as a church. He'd probably eaten meals in many of their houses. And yeah, there's a lot of turnover that can happen in a church in three years. But by and large, the group he's writing to is a group that he knows dearly. It's a group that he knows incredibly well, and God had used him as a, as a foundational piece of their faith. So Paul not only carries the authority and the tone of, of an apostle into this letter, but he also carries the concern of a pastor. He loves them. He wants good for them. He, he aches over them. He stays up at night thinking about this issue and this issue and how do I shift person A to this thing over here for their health and for their good. He, he sees a number of severe symptoms flowing out of a larger core level disease and he won't sit back and just let it go unaddressed. He's going to act. He moves to go straight for the tumor is the, the analogy that we've been using. 
And like we said all the, the way back in, in week one of the series, there are countless ways, and a long list of ways that, that Corinth doesn't look anything at all like, like us. We're in a very different situation than Corinth was. Uh, we're in a much healthier place than they are. Uh, that's, that's measurable on almost everything that you can measure. We, we don't look like Corinth, but listen, uh, the, the pathway to end up looking like Corinth is way, way shorter than we like to believe it is. The move from healthy and thriving to train wreck is actually not a very, very long walk at all if the right things get changed in the wrong way. The distance between those two moments is actually a very subtle thing to find yourself falling into if you're not paying attention to it. And so we, back in week one, we likened it to a compass, you remember? Uh, you got this, this, this act of orienteering yourself and figuring out where you are and figuring out exactly where you need to be. Uh, but we said all the way back in week one that the best way to use a compass is to continue using a compass. Not to, not to use it once and then to set out and ignore it for, for, for good after that, but to come back to that compass and continue to reorient yourself, continue to realign yourself, continue to check your bearing and make sure that you're headed exactly where you are wanting to go. Being one degree off doesn't matter much when you're traveling the course of a field, but if you're traveling hundreds of miles, it affects things in a massive, massive way. And so we've, we've been assuming here that the task in front of us, uh, the bearing that we need to chase after is far too important just to assume that we want to be seriously sure about this. And so being intentional to, to stop and, and to reorient ourselves is a practice that, that I think acknowledges both how important the target is and how feeble and frail the ones doing the targeting are. We understand our frame, we understand our weaknesses, and we understand how easily we can veer off course. And so we want to be diligent to come back to the source of our, of our understanding, back to the source of what aligns us to truth, and we want to press in to the, the best ability of our uh, ability to press in. And so we're, we're not Corinth at all. We're not even close to Corinth. We don't have their problems. But this letter, man, this letter can be a massive opportunity for us to to dial that compass in ever so slightly, make certain, not just assume, but make certain that we're walking the direction that God would call His church here to walk. We can measure our failures, or their failures, excuse me. We can measure their failures against the capacity of, of our own and, and by God's grace, maybe prevent those kinds of problems before they ever arise here. That sounds like a good effort, right? A worthy effort. I, I don't know about you, but I don't want to look like Corinth. Just, I, I, would, I would prefer to stay away from that mess. So let's put in the work now so we never get there, right? This letter isn't merely something that we study from a distance. It's one that we can see ourselves in. And Paul's pastoral words for the Corinthian church are words that we, I think we can and, and we should hear addressed to us. His, his call for the Corinthians it's to fall in love with and to invest themselves completely into God's upside-down kingdom. And I think that's a call that's equally true for all of God's people today, especially those of us living in cultures that actually aren't that dissimilar from first-century Corinth, Greece. 
while there's a lot of differences, there's, there's, there's actually a whole bunch of not so, not so different things. And so, so you ready to see where Paul takes it next? Chapter 2, starting in verse 1. Paul says this, And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom, for I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. All right, so let's go, go ahead and call a timeout there for, for just a little bit. We'll, we'll kind of walk through this piece by piece. Um, if you remember last week, Paul spent the three paragraphs before this moment uh, saying that, that the cross is seen as folly by those who are perishing, that they, that they not only reject it, but they mock it. And that, and that folly is not some cosmic oversight. It's not some accident that God just allowed to, to slip up and happen. It's the exact intended response that God was seeking to elicit through the crucifixion. It's what he was aiming for. It's why he put it there. In other words, God dropped a bloody cross right in the middle of his salvation story, and he did it on purpose. He did it on purpose. He did it for the express reason of making it a stumbling block for those who want to seek to enter his kingdom of their own accord want to seek to enter into his kingdom of their own merit or their own intellect, their own understanding. And it's, it's, it's folly to those who are perishing. But, but Paul also says that to those who are called, it is the power of God. Paul also tells us in chapter 1, we looked at it last week, that, that the calling that, that God placed upon him during his time in Corinth was to strip away all the pretense to strip away all that was unnecessary and all that was, might, might be considered eloquent wisdom and instead simply preach the gospel. In its bare, naked, foundational truth, preach the gospel. And, and here in the first couple of verses of chapter 2, he kind of doubles down on that idea, right? Says that that's what he came to do. When I came to you, brothers, I didn't use lofty speech or wisdom. Even though those things were, were incredibly valued in Corinth, and Paul, Paul intentionally downplayed those things. He intentionally downplayed reason and human philosophy and, and rhetoric so that the wisdom of God would be clearly seen as the active agent of our salvation. People, people wouldn't have the opportunity to confuse the issue. Why? Because... Paul resolved to himself not to allow that to happen. He, didn't, he wouldn't leave that door open to them. He wouldn't allow for Jesus to be seen as merely a philosopher, or merely an example to follow. Paul actually bent over backwards to press the issue of a crucified, suffering Savior and King. He wanted to make it explicitly clear that that is who he was calling the Corinthians to follow. And if you know your New Testament history very well, this is actually something that, you, that kind of makes a lot of sense. Paul, Paul actually learned this lesson the hard way. Right? Uh, we're not going to turn there. We don't have time to, to turn there. But, but Paul, acts, uh, Paul arrives in Corinth in Acts 18 by, by way of Athens in Acts 17. Are, are you familiar with that part of the story? Right? Uh, Athens is the one major Greco-Roman city that Paul doesn't seem to have had a lot of success in. Right? It was the one city that we could probably point to and say, yeah, Paul kind of failed there. Right? It, was kind of, it just kind of blew up in, in Athens. Uh, while he's there, 
He goes to a place called the Arabicus, which is a town hall kind of deal. And all they do there is, is debate things all day. All right? Luke tells us in Acts 17.21 that they would spend, quote, all their time and nothing except telling and hearing something new. Which tells you about all you need to know about that environment, right? It's not exactly a functionally positive place. It's just kind of a waste of time, a waste of breath, and a waste of energy. Not exactly a productive environment. But, but remember, Athens is exactly what Corinth wanted to be. They wanted to be like Athens. So they desperately tried to model themselves after. And so while Paul is in the Arabicus, according to Acts 17, he seems to be doing a pretty good job. He's he's using human philosophy and he's quoting Greek poets and he he seems like he's got everybody hanging on the edge of their seat. He seems like he's got the crowd captured. And then Luke tells us that Paul transitions in that moment to talking about the resurrection of Jesus and he loses everybody. Everybody bails on him and starts laughing at him. They mock him is what we're told. that's, That's what's going on. A crucified and risen Savior was seen as folly to them. It's almost like God's promises actually come true, right? Now, some some would hear the story of Paul in the Arabicus and and go, well, I, I know the answer. I know exactly what should happen. See, what should happen is that Paul should, should, should try to clean up his presentations just a little bit, stay away from those no-fly zones, and, and then maybe he'd be more successful in his evangelism techniques. Right? Worry, just dwell on this, this stuff right here that's going to keep the crowd hanging and, and stay away from the stuff that's going to lose them in an instant. And, and then you can, you can get them on the hook and you can reel them in, Paul. Go, go for it. You're smart enough to pull this off. Practice your stuff. But upon arriving in Corinth... Paul does the exact opposite of that. Instead of pressing in on the human reason and the philosophy and the poetry that was successful to him in Athens, he instead strips all of that away except for Christ and him crucified. He will not allow the testimony of God to be distracted by human reason or by man-made eloquence. If God allowed him success in Corinth, it will only be because God saved people by the power of the cross alone. That's his aim. And so in verse 3, in verse 3, Paul says this, And I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling, and my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. So there are several places in, uh, in Paul's writing where, where he either uh, outright mentions or he kind of alludes to some, several weaknesses that he has. Uh, he even calls them weaknesses uh, at, at some points. Uh, but I don't, I don't think that Paul's talking about a physical weakness here. I, I think the context here demands that he's talking about something more intangible. He came to them in weakness. In other words, his time in Corinth was a season of intentionally laying aside his strengths. Of intentionally laying aside what he was good at and what he could be successful in. His God-given calling was not to lean into his skill set and what God had made Paul good at, but rather... It was to spend his time there being completely dependent upon God to do something. That's what Paul says. To be sustained by him. 
that Paul was to take his hands completely off of the results, to trust that if faithful, uh, that if fruitful ministry was to occur in Corinth, it would only be, not because Paul stepped in and did something awesome. It could only be because God stepped in and did something awesome. It could only come through the miraculous work of God himself. And I've got to be honest with you, that's an incredibly scary thing to do when you've got the power to pull something off. When you've got the ability to hold the crowd, when you've got the ability to keep them on the edge of their seat and to to draw them in with reason and to draw them in with eloquence, when you've got the ability to kind of set that hook and reel them in, it's an incredibly scary thing to take your hands off and say, you do it, God. I'm not going to do this. You have to do this. It's an incredibly scary thing. And Paul says here that that's exactly what he was committed to while he was in Corinth. A reduction of himself and an elevation of the Spirit. He positioned himself in such a way to ensure that he could not receive the credit for any of it. Only God could. The the Spirit and the power of God would get their proper demonstration. No one would mistake the issue. But why? Well, he tells us why in verse 5. Read it again. So that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in what? In the power of God. Hey, can we all agree that our faith resting in the wisdom of men sounds like a pretty terrible idea? Like, we, we all on board with that? Anybody want to argue with that? I, I know that we mention it on a pretty regular basis around here, but it's so incredibly misunderstood in the larger church culture that I think we do a disservice to people if we don't stop and explain terms every once in a while. Faith, right? the word faith is often used in our culture to talk about some, some kind of thing that you hold, a tool that you have in your possession to accomplish some kind of spiritual thing. In other words, uh, you have faith, so now you can do this. Or you have faith, so now you can receive this. And, and it's a measurable this. So if you can figure out how to have more faith, then you can have more of this thing, right? And so the, 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 the amount of my faith is it's dependent upon how much I'm going to get or how much I'm going to do or how much I'm going to see. But that's not the way that the word faith is used in the Bible. It's not even the way the word faith is used in the dictionary. It's not even close to the word. Faith is a synonym of trust. It's a, it's a confidence. You can have faith all you want. You can even have more faith than the guy standing next to you. But if, you, if the thing you put your faith in is not trustworthy, if the thing you put your trust in is not trustworthy, it, it, it's, it's not merely worthless. It's dangerous. In fact, I would argue that it's deadly. Steadily. Paul tells the Corinthian church why he came to them in weakness, he, why he came to them committed to knowing nothing but Christ and him crucified. It's because a faith rooted in, resting in the wisdom of men is not merely a style choice, it's damnable. It will go badly. It cannot save you. doesn't matter how much faith you have. The object of your faith is insufficient. It's going to fail. Saw that branch right off. Oh, 
okay, yeah, yeah, I get that. Sure, yeah. Yeah, I, I agree. We, we should have faith in God, not in man-made reason. But, but hear me out, hear me out. Like, like, faith is still a good tool to get us to, like, reason is still a good t- tool to get us to faith in God, right? Like, that's a good pathway to, to get there. Like, like that's, that's even a respectable pathway, maybe even the best pathway to get us to, to faith in God, right? Like, reason is this, is this grand tool that we can have and we can use. It's in our possession, and we can do something awesome with it to get us to faith in God alone. Awesome, right? Except Paul doesn't seem to think so. He doesn't seem to agree with that logic. One of the most intelligent men to ever serve the body of Christ. While he is evangelizing and trying to reach people in a city that highly valued those things. In a culture that that thought that those things were the apex of existence. One of the most intelligent guys to ever serve the church in a culture where that would be highly received, shuts it all down and says, I'm not using it. I refuse to use it because you're going to be distracted by it and you're going to get the wrong idea about it. He intentionally lays all that aside and commits to knowing nothing but Christ and him crucified. Why? I think it's because human reason is way more fickle than we like to believe it is. I don't think it's nearly as strong as we imagine or hope for or bank on. We celebrate that salvation comes by grace through faith, and we even have a better definition now to to run with. But an incredibly important question uh, can be asked, where does faith come from? Where Where does faith come from? What, what moves us to actually place our trust, our confidence in God alone? And the reality is, is that whether you thought about it or not, there's really only two options for an answer there. there. There's a diverging path here, and you really only have two options as answer. Either option A, you figured it out. You put the pieces together, you connected the dots, you, you solved the puzzle, and so now you have an informed decision to make to follow Jesus. You feel like your, your questions have been answered, and so you make the decision to follow because you figured it out. Either A, you figured it out, or B, God opened your eyes to see. He opened your eyes to see the beauty of who he is, and he opened your eyes to see how trustworthy he is, and he opened your eyes to to see how mighty he is to save. And, And then in that moment, you did the most natural thing that anyone can do when they behold his beauty. You trusted what you saw. And while you might have had questions before, the value and the importance of those questions, they fade into the background in light of his glory and grace. And you freely, and hear me, joyfully placed your faith in him. Why? Because he is good and he showed off a little bit. He said, this is who I am. You said, I want that. Saving faith can only ever have one of two sources, either your ability to make sense of everything 
or God making himself known. Option A, option B. And whether you put thought into it or not, you really want it to be option B. You desperately need it to be option B. Why? Because only option B is big enough to account for my ineptitude. Only option B takes care of my insufficiency to play a part in the role. I don't know if you're aware of this, but I'm not nearly as put together as I like to make myself look. I know I make this look easy. I don't have things figured out. There are days when I have questions. There are days when sin kicks my tail. Those are hard days. I'm not strong enough to right the ship on my own. I don't know, maybe you're different from me, but I doubt it. I need, hear me church, I need the foundation of my faith to rest in something outside of me. I need it. I don't want it to rest in human wisdom. If mere intellectual persuasion can, could save somebody, then that stands to reason that mere intellectual persuasion can also unsave somebody. And I'm in a lot of trouble if that's dependent on me. I've got news for you. I'm not strong enough for option A. I'm not smart enough for option A. I don't want anything at all to do with option A. I pass. Please take it away. I want my salvation to be dependent on anything other than me. Because I know me. But thanks be to God, man. He understands our frame. He understands our frame. He knows how small we are. He knows how weak we are. He knows how fickle and frail we are. And he has not left that responsibility on my shoulders. He's smarter than that. He loves me better than that. It's good news that my faith rests on the power of God rather than anything I could ever produce. It's glorious news that God would give his people eyes to see and to respond to him in faith is something that we will celebrate, hear me, for eternity. We will never grow tired of singing about that one. It's going to be on the set list over and over again in heaven. But it's also like Christmas in Corinth because Paul, I think, wants to, to take us deeper than that just one truth. Because faith is not the only thing that God helps us understand. Look at verse 6. Yet among the mature, we do impart wisdom, although it is not a, a wisdom... Although it's not a wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age who are doomed to pass away, but we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages for our glory. None of the rulers of this age understood this, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. So there's a lot of debate in the broader Christian sphere about, uh, about these two verses right here, or three verses right here. Most of that debate revolves around uh, what we would call uh, this idea of secret or hidden wisdom, right? That, that's, uh, it's a complicated thing to talk about. So there are some that, that want to argue that what Paul's talking about here is a, is a form of Gnosticism. Uh, and, and to be honest, it's, it's further complicated by the fact that in verse 6 he calls people mature, which means that there's an immature and all that kind of stuff. And so, and so people in this camp, they, um, they, 
they attempt to try to describe two classes of Christians. You got, you got the, the immature, the, and with that immaturity comes, uh, they're less refined, maybe they're less educated, they're less gifted, less whatever. And, and then there's another group that is mature, and because of that maturity, they're given this kind of secondary or extra level of wisdom and insight into the deeper workings of God. And so you have normal Christians, and you have the, the elite ones over here who really know things and really understand understand things, but, but I, I really think that a better explanation of this is to remember the context of Paul's writing, to remember who he's writing to and, and why. There are divisions forming in this church right now, right? Everybody's picking their team. I'm team Paul. I'm team Apollos. I'm team Cephas. Oh, you, you stink. I'm team Jesus. That's the tone of what's going on here. Everybody's picking their side. Paul is one of the sides that people are choosing or not choosing. And so some of what he's got to do in this letter is defend himself a little bit. He's got to defend his authority just a little bit and assert himself just a little bit. It, and he's been telling them so far that it wasn't his job to aim for the deep stuff while he was there. They were too immature for that at the time. But just because his ministry approach didn't include that, it doesn't mean that those things aren't there. It doesn't mean that there aren't incredibly deep things of God to be given to the church. He says when we're dealing with the mature, and I think the mature here means the apostles, he says when we're dealing with the mature, we're happy, excited to impart wisdom. But it's not a wisdom that the rulers of the age would define it as, as something good and valuable or even make sense of. It's, it's a wisdom that's hidden from them, but freely accessible to those who belong to God's upside-down kingdom. Decreed before the ages for our glory, Paul says. In other words, to benefit God's people. It's always been his plan to give this to his people. So how do we know that the rulers of the age didn't have this wisdom? Well, two reasons. The first one is found in verse 8, right? Because they, because they wouldn't have crucified Jesus if they knew how glorious he was. They were blinded to the reality of who he is and, and, and the reality of what he was doing. And if they really knew who he is, they wouldn't have done what they did. They would have backed away from that. They would never have dared to crucify the king of glory because they would have known better. All right? And so we can have proof, some, in one part, because, because the, the, the crucifixion happened and we can... We, like Obviously, they didn't know who Jesus was. They were blinded to this wisdom. And that tips us off to, tips us off to the second reason. Look at verse 9. But as it is written, what no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love him. Verse 10. These things God has revealed to us through the Spirit, for the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. So there's a really big question to be answered here. Who is ultimately responsible for our understanding of the deep things of God? God is, right? And that seems like an obvious answer, but I think we fight against that sometimes. The Bible, though, is crystal clear about this. The Spirit is the one who reveals these things. He, he doesn't, that doesn't mean that diligence and study aren't an important part of that equation. God has given us good tools to pursue knowing Him deeply. The spiritual disciplines are, are tools for our good. And I would make the argument that, that, that neglecting those things is a negligence on our part. That, that not using the good tools that He's given us is actually an act of negligence on our part. But, but at the end of the day, 
at the end of the day, it's, it's the Spirit's job to reveal, not your job to attain. The Spirit must open our eyes and give understanding, or those good tools are actually worthless. And you've got this quote in verse 9 here. Some of our copies of Scripture uh, may have a little footnote there that says that Paul's quoting Isaiah 64.4. Um, the problem, though, is that that's not what Isaiah 64.4 says. Um, there, there are some similarities between the two, but the tone is different. The objective is very different. And so what's going on? Uh, if you have a physical Bible, the ESV actually footnote, or actually formats this as a quote. I know it doesn't show it on our, our scripture text on the screen, uh, but uh, the, in, in, if you have a physical Bible, it's going to format it in such a way that it's uh, clearly laid out as a quote. But, but there's a pretty strong argument, and I happen to agree with that argument, that Paul's not quoting Isaiah 64.4 here. He's actually just alluding to it. He's alluding to it. Paul evokes pieces of Isaiah 64 and, and I think a few other places towards the end of Isaiah uh, in order to give weight to something that he's saying here. And, and, and when you think about it, we do this all the time too, right? We'll add or we'll fold in kind of a scriptural vocabulary into uh, our, our language in order to add weight or add substance to, to what we're saying or preachers do it all the time at least, right? And so if you're wondering if that's okay, I think it might be dependent upon how you use it. In other words, is it, is it in good faith? Is it, is it a friendly borrowing or outright stealing? And it probably also helps that Paul carries apostolic authority. He gets to do what he wants. But Paul's point here, I think, at least I think, Paul's point here is to show a consistent reality carried throughout the Old Testament that people still haven't figured out how to telegraph what God's doing. Over and over again. This isn't a New Testament reality. It's a whole Bible reality. People have ideas that God's going to do this and ideas that God's going to do that, and every time they seem to be very, very wrong. No eye has seen. No ear has heard. You don't know God's heart. You have no idea. Because God's bigger than us and smarter than us and sees longer than us. God's plan is far too eternal for us to even begin to wrap our heads around. And our only shot, our only chance at making sense of either Him or what He's doing, it must come, not from our ability to figure it out, but His goodness to reveal. It must come from the Spirit imparting wisdom that's beautifully upside down from the wisdom of this world. Because it'll never make sense on its own. It'll never make sense to you until He makes Himself known. In our fight, in our finiteness, we're, we're, we're too small. But at, but at the same time, we also have a helper with a capital H who's glad, excited to reveal the deep things of God to us. Seems to be something he loves doing. We can never figure things out through our own effort, but it is freely given by the one who wants to be known. So in verse 11, Paul says this, For who knows the person's thoughts except the spirit of that person which is in him? So also, no one comprehends the thoughts of God except who? The spirit of God. So on a human level, this kind of makes immediate sense, right? No one knows you like you know you and the people that you reveal yourself to. No one knows your heart. No one knows what you're thinking. But you can tell people. You can make yourself known. All right? And this reality is even truer on a divine level. Like, like people who are smart and maybe studied a little sociology, they can sit back and watch and figure you out better than the common person can. But you can't do that with God. 
He's a lot bigger than us. He's so much higher than we are. It's impossible for us to know him without his revealing himself to us. But again, it seems like he likes doing that. It seems like he really wants that to happen. He doesn't make knowing him complicated. He makes himself near. He's excited for us to know him deeply. We can't figure him out like we're studying some kind of science project, but he can tell us, and he's pleased to. Look at verse 12. Now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given us by God. And we impart this in words, not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit, uh, but taught by the Spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. All right, so how does the Spirit help us understand the deep things of God? By giving us Himself, by dwelling in us and working in our hearts and our minds to understand and to apply. The Spirit goes before us as we teach, as we diligently study, and causes those hearts that belong to God to hear that teaching and to receive that teaching. And this is why every faithful pastor you've ever had has probably thrown up a desperate prayer right before they entered the pulpit, saying, God, please do something I can't do. God, would you make this bigger than me? Would you make this more effectual than me? I'm not big enough. I'm not strong enough. God, would you do something that only you can do? That's why every pastor you've ever had that walked faithfully did exactly that. Even the most eloquent of human words will one day fade into the white noise of eternity. Doesn't matter how much time they spent preparing that sermon. Doesn't matter how gifted they are in prayer. Doesn't matter about how much they've read or how well they've studied. The most eloquent of human words will fade into the background and be lost forever. Mine especially. And that's if I'm lucky enough for you to remember what I preached last Sunday. But when God's word is declared, And when the Holy Spirit in you receives that word and applies that word, it will not fade. It is of infinite value. It is of eternal value. Spiritual truths to spiritual people affects eternity. And while the positive side of that coin is something that ought to be celebrated Unfortunately, the negative side of that coin is something that ought to be mourned. Those without the Spirit might hear, but they will never perceive. They will never understand. And Paul says exactly that in verse 14. The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. The upside-down realities of the cross and of God's kingdom will never be seen as right-side-up unless the Spirit of God turns hearts upside-down. Unless the Spirit of God enables someone to understand by illuminating their heart. But, oh, pastor, don't you want to soften that message just a little bit? No. What good would it do? The natural person will only ever see spiritual things as folly. Full stop. We talked in weeks past about 
how that rea- reality ought to cause us to expect that, that, that those who walk in darkness would, would, would respond with contempt and would respond with ridicule. And, and that's, that's 100% true. We ought to expect that. But the more tragic reality is that it's not that people would see the cross as folly, but that it's seen as folly by those who are perishing. By those who are perishing. And so our ultimate prayer for, for the lost people we know and love is not, God, would you make me a better evangelist? More articulate speaker? Oh God, would you make me a more winsome apologist? Our prayer is, God, would you open their eyes to see? Would you open their eyes? As we evangelize and as we make intelligent proofs for the gospel, we beg God to use those means, to use those efforts in a way that only He could ever use to to show people who He is and the beauty of His upside-down kingdom. To draw them by His grace into a reconciled relationship with Him. We work diligently in our efforts to be a part of that story. But, but listen, if he chooses some other method, then we'll celebrate that. That's a good day. On a side note, this is also why we focus our church-wide evangelism efforts into to training you to be the ones to take the gospel to them. We, 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 don't, we don't train you to, to, to try to, uh, to have the best uh, evangelism presentation uh, or we, we don't establish some big apologetics program here. We don't have some big event where you're supposed to bring your friend to, to, to church so I can tell them about the gospel. The quality of the presentation is far less important, way less important than you fervently petitioning God for your friend every day and then acting on the burden that he's laid on your heart. We want to spend our time and our energy and our resources pushing you to that end. Let me, let me say that unequivocally. Your lost friend doesn't need me to tell them about Jesus. Your lost friend needs you to just pester God all the time about them. And then for you to tell them about Jesus. That's what your friend needs. Look at verse 15. The spiritual person judges all things but is himself to be judged by no one. For who has understood the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. So because Christians have the Spirit of God within us, we are now capable of judging the wisdoms and the kingdoms that, that, that surround us, the wisdom and kingdoms of this world. Or, or we can say it another way. Those who by the Spirit have been given eyes to see the beauty of God's upside-down kingdom, we are now able to discern what is and is not consistent with His kingdom. Because we understand his kingdom and are growing in our understanding of his kingdom, we now have the ability to discern what is not of his kingdom, what what looks the opposite of his kingdom, what's upside down from his kingdom and ought to be rejected by his kingdom. We see the kingdoms of this world for what they truly are. We see the wisdoms of this world for how they fall short of God's good design. so, So we live in the kingdoms of this world as emissaries, as ambassadors of a better eternal kingdom. One, carefully navigating the kingdoms of this world. Carefully navigating the kingdoms in front of us. We want to be wise ambassadors, right? We want to represent our king and his kingdom faithfully. But two, we're not really, really worried about what those outside of the kingdom think about us and judge us as, or whatever. 
I mean, what do we care? King Jesus has spoken. What are they going to do? What could man ever do? If ambassadors of Christ walk and live consistently with his kingdom, and, and the disclaimer there is obvious. There are lots of people who call themselves ambassadors of Christ who don't look anything like ambassadors of Christ. And so self-identification doesn't make someone uh, a Christian any more than human reason does. But, but if ambassadors of Christ walk and live consistently with his kingdom, then those outside of the kingdom who find fault with you, they're not really finding fault with you. They're finding fault with your king. And anybody want to take a wild guess about how that's going to go? Who has understood the mind of Christ as so as to instruct him? I promise you, there's not one moment in eternity past or one moment in eternity to come where God has been worried that his plan is outclassed or outgunned by some competing kingdom of this world. Not one moment. There's no competing wisdom out there on the horizon that, that Jesus is wringing his hands about, worried is going to somehow outsmart him. He will prevail. He will sit victorious on the throne forever as he makes his enemies his footstool. Not even a contest. It's furniture for him. We can trust that not only will he stand faithful, but he will be faithful to carry his people through as well. He's done the work of saving you for himself and drawing you into his kingdom. What more would he not do? I mean... You think there's some higher, costlier thing that he's withholding? It's called you his. So how should we respond to such news? Well, for the followers of Jesus, I think our response is the same as it is every single week. We repent of sin and we lean into his goodness, right? We, we confess that there is nothing, absolutely nothing in ourselves that got us in the door, and there's nothing in ourselves that keeps us here. But by the grace of God, he opened our eyes to see him and to love him and to respond to him. And so then we joyfully celebrate that goodness, right? We sing his praises. We continue working to align our hearts and lives with the values and the trajectories of his kingdom. In a moment, I'm going to pray and we're going to sing. That's a time for you to be able to, to respond, to put action to what he's stirring in, in your heart. Or, or, or listen, maybe you need to respond in some other kind of way this morning. Maybe, maybe he's, uh, he's calling you to be obedient to, to Jesus in baptism. Or maybe he's calling you to, to join, formally join this church family. Or maybe, just maybe, he's calling you to say yes to the, the call of missions or service that he's laying out in front of you. And so those things are probably, they feel upside down to, to those around you. I get that, but he always seems to be better. Maybe that's what he's calling you today. Maybe you're here and you're not a follower of Jesus yet. I'm glad you're hanging out this morning. I'm glad that, that you've pressed in this far. Listen, I think you can respond to God's word today too, and you do that by meeting Jesus. The Bible teaches that our sin separates us from a holy God. It deserves his wrath. That, that left to ourselves, or as Paul calls here in 1 Corinthians 2, the natural man, we reject the good king and we see him and his kingdom as folly. That's, that's just a truth that the Bible is unapologetic about. But the Bible also teaches that God is rich in mercy and he loves us with a great love. And that even while we are enemies, we can be reconciled to God by the death of his son. 
Jesus came, he put on flesh, he dwelled among us, he lived a sinless life that neither you nor I are capable of living. He died on the cross as a perfect, sinless substitute, innocent substitute to make uh, payment for your sin. And he was raised again from the dead as a vindication of his perfect and sufficient righteousness. And so now as the king who conquered sin and death, he now calls on you to respond to him in repentance and faith, to, to recall out to him as Savior and Lord. And, and I get it. I get it. That, that sounds backwards and upside down right now. I'm not surprised. The Bible promises such. But it's my prayer that God would open your eyes to see the beauty of who he is and what he's doing. It's my prayer that he would call you to himself right now in this moment, that you would be forever changed by him. So maybe today is the day that he does that. Maybe today is the day that you're ready to respond to him in faith. And so I'm going to pray and we're going to sing. If, if you're in the room here, I'll, I'll be down front here. If you're watching us online, I'd, I'd, you can use the comment form linked in the video description. I'd love to be helpful to you as you figure out what that response of faith looks like. You don't need me. God wants to give you himself. He doesn't need some mediator. He is the mediator. But man, I'd love to help you walk through it. Whoever you are, however God is calling you to respond, let's respond together right now. Father, you're good to us. Thank you for the scriptures. Thank you for 1 Corinthians 2. and The difficult realities of a kingdom that's too big for us and too complex for us and too distant for us to make sense of ourselves. But you are the good God who is pleased, who is excited to reveal yourself and what you are doing. You want to make yourself known. So open our eyes to see and draw us nearer. God, for those of us in here who, who know you and, and who love you, help us continue to, to align hearts and lives and actions and thoughts to the upside-down realities of your kingdom. It won't be because we figured something out. It'll be because you pressed upon our heart the need. So show us. That for those in here who don't know you yet, would you make yourself known right now? Would you call men and women into your kingdom and forever change them? For your glory and for our good, would you do a mighty work today? In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.